When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Fayetteville, North Carolina. Fayetteville is the sixth largest city in North Carolina and is probably best known as the home of Fort Bragg, a U.S. Army base northwest of the city that is one of the largest military installations in the world with around 54,000 military personnel. A lot of changes have taken place over the past 20 years, including a revitalized downtown area complete with retail shops and dining establishments and a new $40 million baseball stadium in the downtown area that is home to the Fayetteville Woodpeckers, a Houston Astros affiliate. Despite being the hometown of a minor league baseball team, in 1993, it was a major league basketball team that felt the impact of a shocking murder. On July 22, 1993, James Jordan was traveling home after attending a funeral of a close friend named Willie Kemp. The funeral had been held in Wilmington, North Carolina, which was about 200 miles away from James's home in Charlotte, North Carolina. James and Willie had known each other for 25 years and had worked together for many years at General Electric. Willie Kemp's widow commented that when James left, he said he wanted to get on the road before it was too late and it was already 9 p.m. James Jordan was born in eastern North Carolina and was the son of a sharecropper. He worked his way up from forklift operator to supervisor at General Electric in Wilmington. His wife, Dolores, worked for a short time at United Carolina Bank in Wilmington. Together, they had five children, James Jr., Dolores, Larry, Rosalind, and Michael. After leaving General Electric, Mr. Jordan had owned three sporting goods stores and operated a business that made T-shirts, socks, and shorts. According to an article in the Charlotte Observer in August 1993 by Bruce Henderson and Foon Ray, on Thursday, August 5th, a red Lexus 400 was found in a wooded area near a freeway interchange leading into Fayetteville, North Carolina. The car's rear window had been smashed, and stereo speakers, wheels, and a license plate had all been taken. Investigators said they believed the car had been in the wooded area for two days before someone reported it. Sheriff's deputies were able to trace the car as being James Jordan's. But the car was found almost two weeks after James Jordan had been in Wilmington for the funeral, and it was found halfway between Wilmington and Charlotte. There was never a missing persons report filed for James Jordan. That same day, August 5, 1993, Cumberland County Sheriff's deputies used dogs and a helicopter 
to search the area on the outskirts of Fayetteville where the car had been discovered, but they found nothing. Residents said they either didn't notice the car or thought it was abandoned, and police said there was no blood around the car. Cumberland County Sheriff's Captain Art Binder said that it wasn't unusual for Mr. Jordan not to let someone know where he was. He traveled frequently on business, so it wasn't until his car was found that the family became concerned. Yeah, Kath, I saw an interview with a guy named Matthew, I'm sure I'm going to screw up his name, Perniciaro, and he's a producer, and he produced a documentary called Moment of Truth, and he was basically saying that this is 30 years ago, people were not as connected as they are. And nobody used email really back then on a consistent basis. Usually it was just work-related. Correct. And so one of the things that he said was it was not unusual for James Jordan to be gone for a week or two at a time and not be in contact with his family. You know, he would say, I'm going on a golf trip, and he would leave, and five days later his wife might hear from him. So him being out of town for this length of time and not being in contact was apparently not atypical. And it makes perfect sense, too, because... Unless you're brought up with the generation with cell phones where your parents are always contacting you, you're always contacting your kids, what have you, like all the little short messages, then you're not, it's not going to occur to you to pick up a phone. Yeah. James Jordan's wife, Dolores, told officials that she had last spoken with her husband on July 26th, four days after he attended the funeral in Wilmington. But she didn't know where he was calling from. That was the day before James's 57th birthday. According to Sheriff Frank McGirt, that was the last time they were able to confirm anyone having contact with James. Two days prior to the car being found, a body had been found floating in a river near Bennettsville, South Carolina, which is in Marlboro County, about 60 miles southwest of Fayetteville. A fisherman had found the body and said that the head was raised up above the water with the arms draped over a tree limb, kind of looking like he was trying to pull himself up. The fisherman ran to the closest home and called 911. According to an August 1993 article in the Charlotte Observer by Ricky Morrell, Foon Ree, and David Perlmutt, the day after the body was found, Dr. Keen Garvin, a forensic pathologist at South Carolina's Newberry County Memorial Hospital, helped perform the autopsy. Dr. Garvin said that the person they found had died from a single gunshot wound to the chest. It appeared that the body had been there for a while, and the state of the body was consistent with having been dead for several weeks. There was also no identification on the body. Marlboro County, South Carolina coroner Tim Brown made the decision to cremate the body on August 6th, so three days after it had been found, because the body had already been autopsied, was unidentified, and he had no way to bury it. Kath, I read somewhere that the body was so decomposed they could not tell the race of the individual. According to the article, one week after the red Lexus had been found, Cumberland County Sheriff Morris Bedsole announced that the car they had found belonged to James Jordan and that he hadn't been in contact with his family for three weeks. Coroner Tim Brown was watching the evening news that night and heard the Cumberland County Sheriff's announcement that a man named James Jordan was missing and that his car had been found near Fayetteville. Coroner Brown immediately thought about the dead John Doe that they had found the week before. What had stood out to the coroner was the extensive amount of dental work that he'd seen on the dead body. According to Coroner Brown, it was extensive and expensive. He knew that because of the dental work, the dead body hadn't been a transient, but rather someone with money or had a connection to money, which, of course, a red Lexus would kind of make you think that was true. Agreed. 
Coroner Brown immediately contacted Cumberland County, North Carolina authorities, where the car was found, to tell them about the body. It was about 11.30 p.m., the same night as the evening news, when Cumberland County authorities contacted the sheriff in the county where James Jordan lived to get help getting Mr. Jordan's dental records. The sheriff drove to the home of Jordan's dentist in Charlotte, then drove to Cumberland County and handed the records off to Sheriff Bedsole. At 3 a.m., which is now Friday morning, the Cumberland authorities delivered the records to Coroner Brown. The records were an exact match. They knew with certainty that the body they'd found was James Jordan, who, as we said, had been married and had five children. Condolences came from around the world. Not only was James Jordan known as very down-to-earth, good-natured, and a friend to everyone he met, but he was also the father of NBA superstar Michael Jordan. As everyone knows, Michael Jordan is widely considered to be the GOAT of the NBA, playing for the Chicago Bulls in the 80s and 90s. Michael played for 15 seasons, winning six championships for the Bulls and too many accolades to count. Currently, so as of January of 2022, he's the principal owner and chair of the NBA's Charlotte Hornets. James Jordan's deep and unwavering support of his son was legendary, and because of Michael's success, the Jordans were well-known and highly respected in their community. Federal and state authorities were investigating the apparent kidnapping and murder of James Jordan, pleading with the public for any information that might help them figure out what happened. Authorities said they could find no motive and there had been no ransom demands. The North Carolina FBI office was also involved in the investigation, and an FBI spokesman in South Carolina said they were working with North Carolina agents to look at Mr. Jordan's business dealings. Now that I think about it, Kath, all of this is happening on the border between North and South Carolina, correct? You're exactly right. Okay. James Jordan and other family members owned and operated a number of businesses, including one that had a judgment against it for an unpaid debt. Well, and you know, something I read, Kathy, is that for most of his businesses, it was very common to either have very late payments or not get paid at all. He owned uh, sporting goods stores and he manufactured socks and t-shirts. Okay. Right. Two days after James's body had been identified, civil rights activist Jesse Jackson criticized the decision of the Marlboro County coroner Tim Brown to cremate the then unidentified and decomposing body of James Jordan. Reverend Jackson said the cremation suggested either a cover-up or a tremendous disregard for black males. He said that he had asked the office of the U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno to investigate. Marlboro County Sheriff Chuck Foley didn't agree with Reverend Jackson, saying that there was no more evidence to get from the body and the body was decomposing rapidly, so they had no choice but to cremate it. So Kathy and I looked into this because we thought it was kind of interesting that the coroner would, A, be able to cremate a body so quickly, but also the comment that he had made about not having anywhere to put it. Right. So it turns out that Tim Brown was an elected coroner. Which is common. You can be elected or appointed, and he was an elected layperson, essentially. Exactly. And it's usually the medical examiner who has the medical degree. Correct. The pathologist, yes. Right. And and by the way, a pathologist was the one who did the autopsy here. Right. And so in 2011, Coroner Brown was interviewed on a PBS show. And what's really interesting about it is the correspondent, a man named Lowell Bergman, asked about Tim Brown and kind of the position that he had. The correspondent asked... As the elected coroner, that means when someone dies unexpectedly, you decide how it happened. There was a time when the coroner in Marlboro County was blind, 
right? Corner Brown's response was, yes, sir. That happened here in Marlboro County. He was a blind gentleman. And the correspondent said he was there for, what, 40 years, right? And Tim Brown said, you know, I don't really know, but he had been there for a long time. Yes, sir. The interesting thing, too, is that they were talking about the night that James Jordan's body was found and then he had to do the autopsy. Because this was the purpose of the PBS interview. Exactly. Yeah. So the correspondent, Lowell Bergman, talked about where the body was found and Coroner Brown had responded that they didn't find any identification. They didn't find a wallet, a watch, a ring, a necklace, anything. But as the correspondent noted, if the body had been found just a few feet away... The investigation would have been handled by a fully equipped state medical examiner's office in North Carolina. But because the body turned up in South Carolina, specifically Marlboro County, Coroner Brown was in charge. So as Kathy had mentioned, most of them are elected. And so like most of them, Coroner Brown didn't do autopsies. So he had to ship the decomposing body to a private forensic pathologist more than 100 miles away. All of this sounds pretty janky. It really does. Yeah, it does. But the forensic pathologist who did the autopsy, Dr. Joel Sexton, said that the autopsy was done outdoors in an old garage behind the hospital. It was sometimes very hot, particularly at that time of year. Remember, it's August. And he said you needed to recognize that once a body starts decomposing, it's almost accelerated by the heat. So based on the autopsy, Coroner Brown declared the death a homicide. But Coroner Brown did not have a refrigerator in which to store the decomposing body And he didn't have the funds to bury him. So he had the remains cremated. Now, you had some information on Coroner Brown's qualifications to be coroner. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they have actually raised the qualifications in recent years. But my understanding is when Coroner Brown was elected, he needed to be a resident of the county and over the age of 18. I see. What does he do? Do you know? Well, he had gone to a technical school and then he actually worked in construction. I see. But now to be coroner, you have to have at least a high school diploma. I could be a coroner. You could be a coroner. Now, as Kathy had said, Reverend Jesse Jackson had said that this had been done either as a cover-up or because of a disregard for black men. But Coroner Brown said that he just didn't have any resources. But also he said that he did not know the race of the person because it was so decomposed. And it was the Dr. Sexton who actually identified the body as being of a black man. And this interview was done in 2011. The PBS interview that you're... PBS interview I'm talking about. But even then, so that's 10, 11 years ago, they still had very limited access to a refrigeration unit for the dead bodies. That's incredible. I I don't understand it, to be honest with you. Coroner Brown said at the time, which by the way, he's still the coroner in Marlboro County in South Carolina, just so anybody knows. (laughs) Don't die there. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But he did say that he believes in retrospect that he made the right decision professionally to cremate James Jordan's body. The same day that Jesse Jackson made comments about the coroner, which was two days after the body had been identified, Cumberland County Sheriff's deputies arrested three young men on charges of stripping the Lexus, and a fourth was charged the night before for the theft of the car. Sheriff Bedsole said that he believed that the killer or killers were from the local area, and Captain Art Binder said that he thought the murder was a spur-of-the-moment opportunity. The Sheriff's Department believed that whoever drove the Lexus into the woods where the car was found probably got the car shortly after the killers abandoned it on July 26th. 
the July 26th date, again, being the last date authorities could verify any contact with Mr. Jordan. Kathy and I believe that police used phone records from Mr. Jordan's Lexus to identify people who had been called after Mr. Jordan had last been seen. Correct. Okay, one of the things that we have to point out is that Mr. Jordan was on the cutting edge of things because he had a car phone, which was very, very unusual 30 years ago. So what happened was the sheriffs subpoenaed the records from the phone company, and they saw that a number of phone calls had been made. Two young brothers told investigators that a former neighbor had told them about an abandoned Lexus as early as July 26th. The two brothers, 116 and 120, were then arrested on charges of stripping the car of four tires, rims, and cassette tapes. And if you don't know what the cassette tapes are, ask (laughs) Ask your your parents. (laughs) (laughs) The former neighbor, this is the person who had told the boys where to find the abandoned Lexus, was charged with taking the tires and additional cassette tapes. Sheriff Bedsell said one of the three took investigators to where they'd hidden the tires, which was about three miles from where the car had been found. The sheriff also made it clear that the young men who'd been charged weren't suspects in the death of James Jordan. The same day that those young men had been arrested, a private funeral attended by a couple hundred people was held at the Rockfish AME Church in the town of Wallace, which is where James Jordan grew up. The day after that funeral, two 18-year-old men were arrested for Mr. Jordan's murder. According to a Charlotte Observer article on August 16, 1993, by Foon and Gary Wright, police theorized that the two men laid in wait along U.S. 74 looking for anyone they thought they could rob. When James Jordan pulled his red Lexus off the road in the middle of the night, the two men attacked, startling Mr. Jordan, who was sleeping, and shooting him in the chest. Police believe they realized who they shot So they tried to cover their tracks, driving around for two hours before dumping his body in a creek across the state line in South Carolina. But they made two big mistakes. They used the phone in his car, and they showed off the luxury car they'd stolen. Both men were charged with one count of first-degree murder, armed robbery, and conspiracy to commit an armed robbery. Then Robison County District Attorney Richard Townsend said that he would likely seek the death penalty. The two men arrested were Daniel Andre Green of Lumberton, North Carolina, and Larry Martin Demery of Roland, North Carolina. Just as a side note, Larry Demery and Daniel Green met in the third grade. So Larry's Native American and Daniel's Black. Daniel was part of forced integration. So in interviews that I saw on YouTube of him, um, he basically said that he went to a very racist school and he had a stutter, which made things even more difficult. There weren't a lot of black kids in his school at the time. And kids are cruel. And kids are cruel. And he said Larry was essentially his oldest friend. And he said Larry was always very patient with him. And even though he had a stutter, Larry did not suggest words. Or get impatient with him when he couldn't get a word out. Exactly. And he actually attributes Larry like as being part of a significant reason he he was able to essentially overcome his stutter. One of the things that's interesting about Robison County is that it's a very racially tense place and was at the time of this murder. 
And I am sure that the sheriff's department was very, very desperate and very interested in in finding James Jordan's killers. Oh, I'm sure. They had the eyes of the world watching them. Oh, totally. Green had been paroled from prison just two months before after serving fewer than two years for a conviction in Robeson County for assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill. And by the way, Cap, this incident or this conviction involving Daniel Green occurred when he was 15 years old. And so he served time in juvie for it. And he was essentially out on parole at the time of Mr. Jordan's murder. And it was a situation where he hit a kid in the head with an axe. Oh, my gosh. Right. But really what happened was he was defending himself. And it's kind of a convoluted story. But the bottom line is he was being attacked. He had he had been attacked by these three kids in the past. Like bullies? Bullies, essentially. They beat him up and he ran away and he decided he wasn't going to run again. And he was at a girl's house and they were in a rural area. They show up. One of them pulls out a knife and he says, put the knife down. I'll fight you with my fist, but not a knife. And they were on a porch again in this rural area and there was an axe leaning up against the wall. So he grabs the axe and he starts swinging it back and forth while this guy with the knife is trying to stab him. So Daniel Green is supposedly swinging this axe back and forth, trying to keep the kid at bay. I'm calling him a kid because they were kids. Right. Actually, this yeah, the kid was older than him, but I think he was still a minor. Anyway, the kid lunges in as Daniel Green is swinging this axe and it cracks him in the side of the head. Ooh. Yeah. So Green runs into this girl's house and calls 911 and quickly realizes that they don't have 911 in that county. Because it's so rural. Yeah. So he runs home to his grandma's house and calls the police. The police get there. They hear what happened. They take the kid to the hospital. They tell Daniel Green, hey, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It was self-defense. Well, the kid's father was really upset this happened. Press for a conviction. He gets convicted. However... His conviction was overturned. So his conviction was overturned actually after Mr. Jordan's murder because his attorney failed to present evidence of self-defense. So they, they didn't include the girl who he had been there at the house with. Well, there was there was a ton of stuff that they, they didn't include. But the bottom line is, you know, when the sheriffs arrived and said, hey, don't worry about it. This was in self-defense. It appears that they were correct. And the Court of Appeal overturned that conviction, even though he had already served time for it by the time it was overturned. According to an August 17, 1993 article in the Washington Post by Kevin Sullivan, Daniel Green stared ahead as the judge explained that he was being charged with the murder of James Jordan. Co-defendant Larry Demery, whose nine-page criminal record ranges from stealing moon pies to allegedly robbing a woman by beating her with a cinder block. Do you know what moon pies are? I I do. I used to love those. Really? Yeah. I think there aren't they uh, cookies and a marshmallow goes in the center and the whole thing is covered with chocolate. It totally doesn't sound familiar to me, but it sounds really good. Okay. Well, we'll I, ha- I honestly don't know. I, I don't recognize it. Okay. And I like chocolate. I'm almost positive that I know what a moon pie is, but we'll look it up. You look it up as we as I, as I continue talking. <laughs> we'll let people know. Larry Demery begins shaking and weeping uncontrollably when the judge, who is reading the charges against him, says the word murder. The two 18-year-olds, who are both described as being slightly built, were charged with armed robbery, conspiracy, conspiracy to commit an armed robbery, and first-degree felony murder for James Jordan. When Robeson County District Judge Gary Locklear asked them if they understood the charges, they both simply said, yes, sir. 
Demery's parents sat crying in the crowded courtroom. And Kath, just the day before when reporters came to their mobile home, you know, just busybodies trying to get statements, the Demery parents made them leave by shooting their shotgun. In the air, I hope? I have no idea. Yeah, let's say yes. <laughs> maybe, they're not... maybe into the ground. I have no idea. Oh, true. But I was like, okay. Warning shot. Right. That wouldn't happen in it's California. It's just that sound of the shotgun when you go. I know. Uh, that'd be enough to make me run. Exactly. They took it one step further, apparently. (laughs) During this hearing, police also said that Green and Demery had led them to a 1986 All-Star Game ring that James Jordan had received from his son, Michael. Robeson County Sheriff Hubert Stone said the ring was found wrapped in a bag and buried in a remote area. So I actually looked up moon pies. Was I right? That is exactly what I thought they were. And I'm sure all of you think it's exactly what you thought they were, too. (laughs) I'd like a moon pie right now, please. But honestly, Kath, I don't think I've ever had one. So it isn't exactly what you said. It is. No, it's two round graham cracker cookies with marshmallow filling in the middle dipped in a flavored coating. Ooh, if that doesn't sound good. All right. Flavored coating. That's what I described. (laughs) But do you want to know when they were invented? 1917. Wow. And I can't believe I've never heard of them. I don't even recognize the box, though. Well, see, you weren't allowed to go to the liquor store as a kid, so I walked to the liquor store all the time to get sweets. So I can tell you, like, every brand of Little Debbie Swiss Cakes and Hostess and anything else. So the funny thing is, is Kathy always does make fun of both me and my sister because we weren't allowed to go to the liquor store. And so when she came in to be this, like, rebel and, like... What do you call it? The I think you mean bad good, influence. Good influence. <laughs> when she came in being this rebel. By the way, I was not a rebel for anyone who knows me. Okay, well, she was because she got, she always tried to convince us to go to the liquor store when we'd been told not to. Okay, and and Kathy lived in the most suburban area that a walk to the liquor store was so close. It wasn't even across a crowded street. And when she told me that she wasn't allowed to go, I was like, let's go. We're going. We're going to the and liquor store. I don't store. believe I went with you. Um, I don't even remember yeah. <laughs> that part. I just remember being horrified that you couldn't walk your little self two blocks to the liquor store. Fast forward one year to July of 1994, and there still hadn't been a trial, a preliminary hearing, or even an arraignment for Green and Demery. That's incredible. A Superior Court judge, Greg Weeks, had finally been assigned to the case just days before defense attorneys filed a court document that alleged that James Jordan was still alive. According to the Roanoke, Virginia Times, the defense attorneys hinted at a fake death due to serious financial problems and a paternity suit against Mr. Jordan that had been filed in Illinois. And because the body that was found in the South Carolina Creek was so decomposed, there was no proof of who it really was. Plus, remember that Coroner Brown cremated the body the day after the autopsy. In recent motions, defense attorneys had questioned whether prosecutors had evidence proving that Jordan's dental records matched the dead man's, alleging that prosecutors were either withholding evidence or had none. Although one thing we didn't point out earlier was I believe that the medical examiner maintained his jaw, didn't did he not? And his hands. Yes, his jaw and his hands were kept and they were not cremated, correct? Correct. Okay. In addition, as we'd said earlier, police believe James Jordan died in the early morning hours of July 23rd, despite a convenience store clerk, an employee at one of Jordan's businesses, and Jordan's wife, Dolores, all saying they spoke to him on July 26th. The investigator's response to these claims? All of these people were wrong. 
Obviously, the investigators were looking for a particular narrative if they're saying all those people are wrong. Well, especially the man's wife. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting because the director of the documentary that I referenced called Moment of Truth, and again, this was a documentary, I don't know if I said this yet, it was put out in April of 2021. And the guy said, we just want to look at the facts, seek the truth, see what happens. We're not trying to convince people one way or the other. But he was saying that there was so much conspiracy about this case and the fact that he was cremated before he was identified the fact that nobody put in a missing persons report, even though his family hadn't heard from him in a few weeks. What, was it three weeks or two weeks? Uh, it was almost three weeks. Okay. And just the fact that the crime supposedly happened in this random convenience store parking lot, like why was he there? And why would he pull over to sleep on his way home? Yeah. The director was basically saying lots of conspiracy theories have come up around this case, but most of which don't have any facts to support them. Well, right. And, and he's famous. He's wealthy. His son is certainly famous and, and even more wealthy. And so that's where the conspiracy theories come from. People always want it to be something salacious. Right. When in fact, it could just be he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's exactly right. And uh, certain conspiracy theorists were saying, oh, this had to do with a mob hit because of gambling debts. And other people were saying, oh, he was part of the drug trade. But again, like you just said, more like wrong place, wrong time. Right. Exactly. The trial started in Robeson County, presided over by Superior Court Judge Gregory Weeks. Jury selection took five weeks and was chosen from a pool of a thousand residents. The jury was comprised of five American Indians, four blacks and three whites, which pretty much reflected the racial makeup of Robeson County at the time. Green's jury consultant said that the defense was happy with the jury. And to be clear... Larry Demery, again, Green's friend who had been arrested with him, was also charged with first-degree murder. He pleaded guilty nine months before Green's trial and agreed to testify against Green with the hope of not getting the death penalty. His sentencing did not take place until after Green's trial. One of the issues the judge had to decide was whether or not a jury would be allowed to see a video that showed Green performing rap songs, singing and dancing while wearing a watch, and two NBA national championship rings that Michael Jordan had given his father. Green was also wearing James Jordan's eyeglasses in this video. Michael Jordan used a photo taken from a video clip to identify the 1986 NBA ring, the 1990-91 NBA ring, and the NBA championship watch. Judge Weeks ruled that jurors might be allowed to see the video, but would not be allowed to hear it and hinted that the jury may only see photos made from the tape. It came out later in trial that Green had made this rap video, I'm going to call it, within days of Mr. Jordan's murder, wearing his items. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. 
And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash killer D. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. trial began on January 3rd, 1996, and on the first day, the jury heard opening arguments from both District Attorney Johnson Britt and Public Defender Angus Thompson, testimony from five witnesses, and a statement from Michael Jordan. The defense also tried to bring up other reasons that James Jordan might have been killed, and defense attorneys tried to ask Larry Jordan, who was one of James Jordan's sons, about financial problems in the family business and about paternity suits against James Jordan in Illinois and Pennsylvania. Judge Weeks prevented jurors from hearing most of the questions, ruling them irrelevant, but the prosecutor complained that the questions were actually just cheap shots and that the character of Mr. Jordan was not an issue in this case. And I can imagine, Kath, honestly, you're attacking Michael Jordan's dad. Right. And everybody knows it and everybody loves Michael Jordan. So some of that sunshine is going to reflect off the dad. Correct. Too. And and honestly, by all accounts, his dad seemed like such a good character. Like he just seemed like a good guy. So I think the defense was in a very unenviable position because of who his son was. Well, and obviously they only could go after James Jordan if they wanted to prove somebody else did it. But like you said, correct, he was the victim in all of this. And, you know, you hear about a lot of sports parents who get into trouble or who cause problems or what have you. And James Jordan was known by everybody for having this unwavering love for his son and just being salt of the earth, a very good man. Yeah. Great reputation. Now, details that came out in opening arguments from the prosecutor included the fact that James Jordan's blood alcohol was above the legal limit the night he was killed which might explain why he pulled off the highway to sleep. Although, Kath, his trip was 200 miles that night, right? Right. Okay. I've had to pull off and go to sleep from here to San Diego, and that's only a 100-mile trip. (laughs) No, and it's true. And if he'd been at the funeral all day, and it was a long day, you're emotionally exhausted as well. So, no, there's totally a reason to do it. Authorities also found the alleged murder weapon, a thirty-eight caliber Smith & Wesson revolver, in a vacuum canister in Green's room. According to the prosecutor... A shell casing from a test bullet fired from the gun conclusively matched a shell casing found at the bridge from which James Jordan's body was thrown. And the first call made on the car phone went to a 1-900 sex line. You don't know what these are? Before the days of the internet, that was a thing. Oh, totally. The defense and prosecution rested their cases on Friday, February 23rd, 1996. On Monday, February 26, Judge Weeks ruled that the only murder count for consideration was going to be first-degree murder in the commission of a felony. So 
that would be under the felony murder rule, and I'll get into that later. The defense attorneys asked the court to allow the jury to consider a verdict of second-degree murder, and the judge said no. Jurors began deliberation five days after the trial concluded. This was likely because they were hashing out jury verdicts and whatever else, and who knows, maybe the judge was golfing. I don't know. There was also a weekend in between. Okay, that's fair. Okay, so one of Green's attorneys, Woodbury Bowen, told reporters that Green had faith in the jury, even going so far as ignoring his attorneys who urged him to seek a mistrial after the prosecutor had argued in front of the jury that Green hadn't testified on his own behalf. So we've talked about this in the past. Prosecutors are not allowed to comment on the fact that somebody stayed silent and this guy did. So check it out, Kathy. Prosecutor comments on the fact that Green invoked his Fifth Amendment rights. His attorney stands up and... Hopping up and down. Hopping up and down, and he moves for a mistrial. And the judge turns to Green, the defendant, and says, Mr. Green, do you essentially says, do you agree with your lawyer? Anyway, so the judge probably explained to Green what a mistrial was and says, do you agree with this? And Green basically said, I think the prosecution intended to draw a mistrial, and no, I don't agree. At which point, the judge goes and grabs some attorney from literally the next door courtroom and says confer with Mr. Green and let me know whether he understands that I'm I'm not going to hear the motion for mistrial if, if he doesn't want me to. So he confers with the lawyer and Green comes back and goes, no, you're a judge. Like, no, your honor, I don't want I don't want a mistrial. So this probably goes back to the jury consultant at the beginning, having said that they liked the jury composition and that Green had faith in the jury. Right. Anyway, the judge apparently did this four times during the trial. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, where the defense attorney makes a motion and the judge basically turns to the defendant Green and, you know, basically like, do you agree with your attorney's motion kind of thing? I I found that very strange. But anyway, I'm sure it's happened. And that didn't even happen in Legally Blonde. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Very fine point. Thank you. Exactly. So two days after jury deliberations began, Daniel Green was convicted of first degree felony murder after the jurors deliberated for more than four hours over the course of two days. They also convicted him of armed robbery and conspiracy to commit armed robbery. The sentence on the murder charge was submitted to the jury, but the judge would sentence for the two other felony charges, the robbery and the conspiracy. On Tuesday, March 12th, more than two months after the trial began, Green was sentenced to life in prison for murdering James Jordan. Judge Weeks sentenced him to an additional 10 years for the two additional felonies. Larry Demery was sentenced to 40 years in prison after pleading guilty and testifying for the prosecution. Daniel Green's convictions were upheld by the North Carolina Court of Appeal in 1998 and the North Carolina Supreme Court in 1999. The United States Supreme Court later denied review of this case. After that, in 2000, Daniel Green filed a motion requesting a hearing on new evidence. Now, Green had a series of attorneys assigned as counsel, but it wasn't until 2015 when the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, a Durham, North Carolina-based civil rights firm, assumed formal representation of Daniel Green that the motion was heard. Daniel Green's attorneys argued that he had been wrongfully convicted. Daniel Green has admitted his involvement in helping Larry Demery cover up the crime after the fact. However, He has always maintained his innocence on the murder charge under which he is currently serving a life sentence. Okay, so Kath, one of the things that I watched, like I said earlier, was an interview. And basically what Green says is that he had just gotten out of juvenile hall for the axe offense. The self-defense. Exactly. That was that was later a conviction that was later overturned. 
Anyway, so he had just gotten out of juvenile hall. He's hanging out with Demery and this very pretty girl. So Demery wants to wants him to come with him. Like he says, hey, come with me, come with me. And Green says no, because whatever, he and the girl. He was with the girl. He was with the girl. And he exactly. was a teenager. Exactly. He and the girl start making out. Demery leaves. Demery's gone and does not return until about four in the morning. And again, this is according to this interview given by Green. Green says, what's going on? And he says, get in my car. Supposedly, his friend Demery was nervous and shaking, definitely out of sorts. He Something says, a best friend's going to pick up on and want to Correctly. So he says, okay, come with me. He takes him to the body and he says- of James Jordan? Correct. He takes him to James Jordan's body and says to Green, he tried to, he tried to take my gun, so I shot him. They then get a quilt out of Demery's trunk. They take Mr. Jordan's body- and they transport it and they they dump it off this, I'm going to call it a, like a, like a, a small bridge, a low bridge. Exactly. And then Mr. Jordan's body is found downstream, kind of hung up on some branches. On the red Lexus, they drive it around. They make phone calls. They find out he has a car phone. So they make some phone calls to apparently the, the 1-800-SEX number yeah. that you were <laughs> one, talking about. 1-900-SEX. Exactly. <laughs> According to Green, he has no idea that this belongs to a famous person's car. He says he sees the rings, he thinks they're cool, and he and his buddy take them. Right, because if you've never seen a championship ring, you're going to think it's a big flashy ring, but not understand the significance of it. Right. And so he, he takes the rings, he takes the watch, and they keep them, and they drive around in this Lexus. So here is what Green thought. He knew that Demery was involved in drug courier kind of things. And Green says that he thought this Lexus, because it was so fancy, must have been some drug dealer's car or, so, or something. like the man that Demery had killed had been a drug dealer and he'd taken his car. He, yeah. So he thought it was some type of drug deal gone bad, assumed it was going to be burnt or chopped or sold for parts or whatever. And so they were driving it around, showing it off. And he makes a ton of phone calls. So I believe that the court transcript said there were 26 phone calls made from the car. So Green was basically calling his friends, calling his family. Of course, he has a car phone. Yeah, making all these phone calls. So there was one call on the night that Mr. Jordan was driving home. And that was a call at about quarter to eight. And so he made that call on the way to dinner with some friends. Then I believe he left at 930 to drive home. Right. So that's about the timeline we're getting. Exactly. So the first phone call was at 5 a.m. the next day from Mr. Jordan's car phone. The next call, which was a fairly significant phone call, was to a known drug dealer. I can't remember the guy's name. Was this the illegitimate son? Yeah. Oh, that's right. All the newspapers <laughs> described him as the illegitimate son of the... Uh, Robinson County Sheriff. Exactly. His what name was Hubert Larry Deese. Right. So other than the phone call to Deese, every other phone call happened hours later, and it was to like people that Green was calling, like friends and family and whatnot. But Green is insistent that he had nothing to do with the murder. He had nothing to do with whatever Demery did. He, he didn't conspire. He admits to helping him hide the body. He admits to that. So being an accessory after the fact, but he, does, he, he admits to nothing else, and he's always maintained his innocence on that point. The reason this is important is because the first degree murder charge is a felony murder charge, which basically means if someone dies in the commission of a dangerous felony, 
even if you were not the person who pulled the trigger, you can be held responsible for their death. So in this case, if Green is not present at all, and if his story is totally accurate, he is only an accessory after the fact, and it's impossible for him to be held responsible for the murder. So he has been trying to get a new trial ever since 1996 when he was convicted. One of the things that I think is interesting to point out is when they get arrested, so what happens is, according to Green, the police come to his house and arrest him, and he sees that they're there, and he calls Demery, and he goes, hey, you got to come over to my house. The police are here. It's probably about the other night. You got to come. You got to come explain or come help me or whatever. Demery says, I'll deal with it later. Green is left with the impression that Demery didn't believe him, so he never comes to Green's house. Green is then taken into custody. Well, what we find out later is Demery hangs up with Green. He then starts listening to the police scanner, and he realizes about 11 p.m. that night that he, too, is going to get arrested. So he runs and, like, hides in a field for two hours. Did they find him there, or did he get cold and come home? No, so what happens is he comes home, he gets in the bath, and his mom calls the police. And, oh, wow. Yeah, and I have Good no idea. her. But I don't know if he did it, if she did it because she knew something was sketchy or because he said, please call the police, I'm home. I don't know. Well, I, I don't know what happened. But I'm guessing the police made it to his house and told his parents that they wanted to talk to him. They wouldn't have known he ran. Yeah, no, you're right. They probably were there when he was hiding in the field. So they take him to the station as well. What happens is Green is at the station. All he has been told by Demery is that this man tried to like attack him or take his gun and that's how he was shot. So in Green's mind, his friend Demery has a self-defense situation. So the police come to Green's house and they say, would you come with us to the sheriff's department, sheriff's station? And he says, yes. He then gives permission for them to search. He goes to the sheriff's station. Now, remember, again, he thinks that Demery has killed this guy in self-defense, but he doesn't want to snitch on his friend. So he remains silent for seven hours. Not silent. That's not fair. He talks, but he never tells on his friend. And the, the police or the the sheriff's deputies are saying they, they never gave him a Fifth Amendment. They never gave him a Miranda warning saying he had the right to a lawyer and blah, 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 blah. They basically harangued him for seven hours. And at the end of seven hours, when they had nothing, they gave him a Miranda warning, he invoked his right to counsel, and then they said, okay, you're under arrest. So one of the things on appeal that happened is his attorney goes, hey, wait a second, this was a total Miranda violation. He was never told that he had the right to remain silent or get a lawyer because what happens is at trial, I would say for about two of the seven hours, the police were recording their uh, conversation with Green, and some of that was admitted at trial. So the defense attorney objected, saying, hey, he was never given his Miranda warning. That should be excluded. And the judge says, no, 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 he wasn't in custody. In order to have a Miranda warning, you, you know, you have the right to remain silent. If you give up the right to remain silent, blah, 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 blah. You have to be in a custodial interrogation. So the issue on appeal was whether he was in custody because he was never told he was under arrest. He said he was there voluntarily, yet these other facts came out. He was there for seven hours till 4.45 in the morning. He was in a 20 by 20 foot room with four deputies, three of whom had guns on them. And he was being accused of killing James Jordan. And so one of the things that's interesting to note, so that was, that was one of the first appeals that was denied. The Court of Appeal said the facts in this case related to custody are troubling to this court. And they go on to analyze them and they say, had we been the trial court, we might have made 
a somewhat different finding because remember the trial judge said no Miranda violation. He was not in custody. So the Court of Appeal says we might have made a somewhat different finding and ultimately might have reached a different legal conclusion on the question of custody. We acknowledge that this is a close case. However, we conclude competent evidence supports the trial court's findings of facts. So in other words, this Court of Appeal was like, hey, we're not going to be the guys who overturn the verdict, you know, for... uh, For Michael Jordan's dad. Exactly. Although there have been a number of unsuccessful appeals, there are a number of facts that continue to come up. That includes the State Bureau of Investigation agent, Jennifer Elwell, who gave expert testimony at the original trial that there was blood in the front passenger seat of Jordan's Lexus, which was the only physical evidence confirming Larry Demery's story. Elwell's testimony critically supported the state's theory that the car was the scene of the murder. Oh, by the way, real quick, Kath, Mm -hmm. Demery said at trial that it was Green who shot Mr. Jordan and then placed his body in the front passenger seat. In order to confirm Demery's testimony, there had to be blood in the vehicle. Right. And so, so that's what the State Bureau of Investigation agent had confirmed. Although in 2010, following revelations of a widespread scandal within the State Bureau of Investigation's blood unit, newly discovered evidence showed that Agent Elwell's expert opinion was false and misleading. Agent Elwell said that if she was called to testify today, she would not say the material was blood. She also revealed additional negative or inconclusive tests performed on the seat of the Lexus, which were not provided to the defense at the time of the trial. The Cumberland County Sheriff's Office had a crime scene tech who went to the car and said, hey, there's no blood here. Eight days later, Ms. Elwell shows up and says, oh, yes, there are. So she did two tests on it. They're like preliminary. They're called preliminary tests. So they are not conclusive and they are not designed to be the basis of testimony. One is luminol and the other is something like pheno, blah, 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 blah. I can't remember the name of it. Is that the exact name? (laughs) That's that's the technical term. So these tests are presumptive if they are positive. And then if you have a presumptive test, you are supposed to do the more scientific conclusive test. Well, she did these tests and they were negative. But again, she never gave the information. However... She took the stand at trial and said, in my opinion, there is blood. Again, she's the only person confirming Demery's version of events, and Demery is the only person saying Green is the shooter. According to Green's attorneys, withheld evidence was not the only factor contributing to Mr. Green's wrongful conviction. Mr. Green's trial counsel provided ineffective assistance of counsel in a number of ways. They promised to put on witnesses to prove that Mr. Jordan was still alive at the time the state said he had been killed. However, they failed to interview these witnesses prior to trial. Similarly, they promised to show that the call to Hubert Larry Deese, again, this is the illegitimate son of the then Robeson County Sheriff, was evidence of a drug deal gone bad. However, they failed to interview witnesses who supported this theory. And so Deese was a friend of Demery. He did not know Green. That's why he's important. Hubert Larry Deese is also important, though, Kath, because he was also a co-worker of Demery's, and they both worked within a mile of where the body of James Jordan was found. Meanwhile, the trial counsel also failed to interview or call as a witness Green's principal ally, Bobby Joe Murillo. This is the, the girl that Green had been making out with when Demery came around and asked him to go with him to this body. 
Detective Mark Locklear, who was the lead investigator on the case, Sheriff Hubert Stone, who was responsible for overseeing the case, and District Attorney Johnson Britt also failed to disclose information to the defense that was in the possession of the Robeson County Sheriff's Department. This includes a call from James Jordan's car phone in the hours after his murder that was to the quote-unquote illegitimate son of the sheriff. I love how everyone just keeps, like, I didn't even know, like, I mean, I thought that word was gone a long time ago, like the illegitimate son. And it wasn't even used in quotes in the newspapers that we saw either. It was weird how often they said that in the newspaper. Every time he was mentioned, it said that. Can we just say the son? We'll say the son. Sheriff Stone, who associated with other known drug traffickers, supervised the investigation of the Jordan murder and testified as an expert witness in the case. The sheriff's son, Hubert Larry Deese, was engaged in a large-scale drug trafficking operation and had worked as an informant for his dad's department. So for the sheriff's department. That's incredible. The sheriff's son, as we mentioned, was also a co-worker with the state's chief witness, Demery, who was also known to the department to be involved with cocaine. The two men worked within a mile of where the body was found, and lead investigator Mark Locklear regularly rode with the drug trafficking son of the sheriff in his patrol vehicle in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, recently, Mark Locklear has conceded that this evidence is Brady material that should have been disclosed, and he has said that he wouldn't close the door on the possibility that Mr. Green was innocent. Now, for those of you who don't know, Brady material is in reference to any information that may be adverse to the prosecution's case or could provide evidence of the defendant's guilt. Innocence. Back in 2010, Daniel Green had asked the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence to represent him. Because he had appointed counsel at the time, the center declined to look at the case. In 2016, the center's executive director, Christine Muma, agreed to consult with Daniel's longtime appointed counsel on the case for a specific issue. There were striking similarities between testimony in Daniel's case regarding blood evidence. This is what we were talking about with the SBI agent, Elwell and the blood evidence issues the center had discovered in another case that had actually led to an exoneration. Later that year, after reviewing additional evidence, Christine Muma became convinced that Daniel Green was not involved in the robbery or the murder of James Jordan, and at Green's request, the center agreed to join him as co-counsel. The center presented oral arguments in support of Green's petition for an evidentiary hearing on December 5th of 2018. Despite presenting evidence of significant questions of fact, plus evidence of alleged multiple constitutional violations, on March 6, 2019, Judge Gilchrist denied the motion for appropriate relief without even a hearing. Christine Muma filed a motion asking the judge to reconsider so new testimony from Green's co-defendant could be heard. Christine Muma had an affidavit that accompanied her motion that stated that Larry Demery, Green's co-defendant told her in a December 2018 interview, quote, that he felt coached by law enforcement to testify falsely against Mr. Green, end quote. Muma has said that the case against Green was dependent on testimony by Demery, arguing he had an incentive to lie in hopes of avoiding the death penalty. So one of the things that Green said in the interview that I saw, Calf, was that now this is his best friend. Demery was his best friend in the whole world. And they have not had contact since the night they were arrested. So 
Green believed that when the police were interrogating him for seven hours that night and they were telling him, Demery said you were the shooter, Demery said this, Demery said that, he did not believe that Demery was present in the sheriff's station. I wouldn't have believed him either. Exactly. However, then one of the police officers said, or the one of the sheriff's deputies said, we know that you shot Mr. Jordan in self-defense. So all of a sudden... Green is thinking, oh, my God, they do have Demery in the other room because Demery told me that he shot this guy in self-defense. Right. So, again, Green and Demery have not spoken with each other, but Green opines that Demery lied about him for three reasons. Number one, he wanted to avoid the death penalty. Number two, Demery had a baby on the way. Oh, my goodness. And number three... He thinks that Demery must have believed that Green was saying Demery was the shooter. One of the things that's really interesting in this case is that one of the theories, especially in this um, documentary that I referenced, was that they picked Green to be the fall guy. And they were going to support Demery. That's Robeson County? Is it Robeson County, okay. exactly. And, and again, Demery has all these connections to the drug trade and drug trafficking, and there are allegations extraneous to this case that suggest many Robeson County deputies and law enforcement officers are dirty and involved in drug trade and robbed drug traffickers and did all sorts of shady stuff. And we're being clear that we have no evidence of that. We're just reporting what we'd read. However, there was a thing called Operation Tarnished Badge, and it focused on Robeson County. It began in 2002, and many people, including the sheriff, not the sheriff who was in at the time of this trial, but the subsequent one, people have been indicted and some have been convicted of crimes related to ripping people off and... It was stopping them on the side of the yeah, road, right? stealing and, drugs. Yeah. Apparently, this is a super... This county, Robeson, has a really bad reputation. Of course. Anyway, one of the things I want to point out was that Demery, after he agreed to testify against Green was transferred back to the county jail pending trial. While he was staying there, law enforcement allowed him to leave. So he was able to leave the jail and be escorted to his family's house for visitations with his son, his wife, and have Sunday dinner. Wow. Yeah. Honestly, even if there wasn't corruption going on, which it sounds like there was anyway, but that's where the problem comes. It was special treatment. Why totally. would you not think this was a problem? Totally. I'm pretty sure Green had no, uh, no dinners with his family while he was in custody. Pretty much guarantee that. In July 2021, the center filed a petition with the Court of Appeal. And on November 30th, 2021, so really only about five weeks before we're now recording this episode, the North Carolina Court of Appeal gave Daniel Green his first victory and ruled a favor of sending the case back to Judge Gilchrist for a review. Remember, this is the judge who denied the motion that had been filed in 2018 without even giving it a hearing. Basically, what Green wants this entire time is for somebody to review the new evidence because these are questions of fact. These are just not things that say, oh, the judge made a wrong decision. These are new questions of fact, and he wants an evidentiary hearing to determine whether or not he deserves a new trial. Well, and really the big bombshell, too, is that for the first time, Larry Demery had put in an affidavit that he had felt coached by law enforcement to testify falsely against Mr. Green. Right. I don't believe he said that he was the one who did it. I think Demery is just saying that Green wasn't the one who did it. Demery is essentially confirming something the jury found. So here's what's crazy about this case. The entire time the state was saying 
green is the shooter, green is the shooter, green is the shooter. Demery was saying green is the shooter, all this kind of thing. At the close of the hearing on March 12, 1996, the jury recommended that Mr. Green received a life sentence rather than the death penalty. On the issues and recommendations as to the punishment sheet, the jury responded no when asked if it found that Mr. Green killed, attempted to kill, or intended to kill Jordan, or intended that deadly force would be used in the felony. So that's incredible. That's unbelievable. Right. What the jury was saying was that you were there during this robbery, so you're guilty of first-degree felony murder, but you weren't the shooter. So they're basically saying then that they believe Demery's the shooter because it was only the two of them. They believe Demery's the shooter. And so they're taking a position that is inconsistent with the state at the prosecutor's office and inconsistent with the testimony of the only witness who puts Green at the scene of the murder. But you're saying because it was felony murder with Green being with Demery, it didn't matter if he shot him or not. He was still guilty of felony murder. Right. So the jury found Demery not credible on that point, but they still convicted this guy. They still believed he was at the scene. It's really significant that it is written as no, he did not kill, attempt to kill, or intend to kill Jordan. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so basically, the prosecution is stuck with this finding. The North Carolina Post-Release Supervision and Parole Commission had announced in 2020 that Larry Demery would be granted parole as part of an agreement to take part in a scholastic and vocational program. This program was designed to prepare him for life outside of prison. The initial release date for Demery was August 2023, but in June of 2021, the commission announced that they had pushed the date back one year to August of 2024. The commission issued a press release stating that the agreement had been terminated, but didn't give a reason. The press release also said that Demery would be reviewed again for parole on or about December 15th of 2023. Demery is currently serving his sentence at a minimum security prison northwest of Charlotte. And according to the New York Post, Demery's record in prison shows 19 infractions since 2001, including two for substance possession in December of 2021, which is the assumption as to why Demery had his parole date pushed back. I'd like to end by reading what Mr. Green said to the judge at the end of his trial. The court gave him an opportunity to, say, to speak if he wished, and he took it. And he said, first of all, I just want to thank you, Your Honor. I want to thank you, my lawyers. I want to thank you, the jury, everyone for the time spent on this case. I know it may seem cliche to you, but I did not kill Mr. Jordan. I did not rob Mr. Jordan. I have never tried to kill anybody or tried to hurt anybody except for in self-defense. I know that this is supposed to be a sacred institution, being this law, this court, but the way that people lie, both inside this courtroom and outside this courtroom, has made this whole process about as sacred as the red light district in New Orleans. I wish peace on everybody. Thank you. I actually thought it was a graceful exit, and I'm very happy that they're going to review the decision about the evidentiary hearing. I'm very happy about that. We just hope that the truth is found and that justice is served. Correct. Whichever way it shakes out. Right. We always want the truth to come out. Correct. And 25 years later, this is still a tragedy for the Jordan family. This is something they think about every single day. Right. The families of murder victims never quite heal from such devastation. 
Thank you all for listening. If you liked us. If they stayed this long, they've liked us, I hope. (laughs) Good point. Very good point. Please review, rate, or subscribe. And tell a friend. Exactly. Thank you. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound. All with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.